Hi again, everyone, or anyone really, and welcome back to the fourth episode of the Pocket Dump Podcast, or part two of the third episode if you're counting by guests. If you want me to just get on with it, I will. But if you are here for the preview of the Spyderco Roadie, or because of the Shiny, which this week is the key pack, you might get a little confused about how sudden we get into the interview. With the help of the show notes, you can catch up, or you could go back and listen to the first part of this interview which is a conversation I had with Matt Lolly. He's a bike fitter, a mechanic, and a store manager from New England. A part of the talk today centers on shopping on Main Street versus just getting it online. And he and I are in lockstep in our opinion about this. I don't think it would surprise you that a man who makes his living selling stuff from a brick-and-mortar location has some opinions about drone-delivered website orders. The part that might give you pause is the survival-of-the-fittest attitude he takes toward retail in general. With bikes, as well as with knives and guns and a lot of other specialty stuff, there is a lot to be said for trying before you buy. And that can't be done at Big Johnson Sports. I won't keep preaching because we have a lot to get to. Our preview this week is of the Spyderco Roadie. Sometime back in 2003 or 4, when we were all a lot younger, the USTSA said that it was going to allow knives back on airplanes, but with some restrictions. Those restrictions sounded a lot like Great Britain's carried knife laws. The knife you traveled with could not have a lock, had to have a small blade, no assisted opening, etc. Knife makers went to work on designing stuff that fit that bill, but alas, even that set of allowances was shut down. So, now the only people on an aircraft with anything to hurt someone with are the ones who smuggled it on board. Which, according to a recent report, would be 19 out of the 20 of the people who tried. Spyderco, formerly known for their scary-looking serrations and the big hole in the blade, still a trademark for them, got a design together for this set of rules in partnership with some really clever Italians. So regulations be damned, they liked it enough to bring it out anyway. The reason I get to talk about it today as a preview is that they just began selling the roadie in four extra colors. The FRN handle scales are now available in the original black, duh, red, blue, gray, and blaze orange. Blaze orange, you guys. So let's talk about the stats. It's three inches closed. It's actually 76 millimeters, which is 2.99 inches, but you know, shut up. The blade is 2.1 inches with a nice choil and a one and three quarter inch cutting edge. And it's made from N690CO, maybe that's called 690CO steel, but it's N690CO steel. And this is a bridge between 440C stainless and VG10, which is considered by some a super steel. It has a higher cobalt content than strictly stainless, and that should aid in rigidity. But I'm not a scientist. The slip joint design of the knife not only holds the knife open, but there's a stop when the knife is closing that holds the blade at about 90 degrees. This is a safety measure if the blade is collapsing toward your fingers, which doesn't seem likely with how the blade itself is part of how you hold it, unless your hands are unbelievably small. It's not pointy or particularly stabby. I'm not talking about a stiletto here. The blade profile is close to a sheep foot blade with just a little bit more belly. And instead of that little notch carved into the side for fingernail based opening, it's got this nice round hollow that's not a hole all the way through the blade, although it does have one of those because it is a Spyderco and it just wouldn't be a Spyderco without a hole in the blade. It's got this little indentation on both sides so you can get an actual fingerprinty grip for your two handed open. This is not designed to be open one handed. The weight is one ounce. So that's hard to argue against being able to have it with you. Three inches long, 2.9 inches long closed. Three inches long, one ounce. This knife is well within the most restrictive knife laws in this country and also legal to carry in the British Isles and Europe. There are places that knives are just never allowed and that's fine, but... Washington, D.C., Chicago, L.A., New York City. This is okay in all of them. This Spyderco offers a better blade than anything I've seen in its weight class, and it doesn't look scary. So there's a lot to be said for not looking like a murderer on those occasions where you do have to empty your pockets. 
It's not a keyring knife, although the company does make a few of those. It's a pocket knife, and it's got some elegance to it. MSRP at $80. It's in five colors. And if you do get one, let me know how you like it. This is the Spyderco Roadie. Of course, Spyderco.com. Of course, link in the show notes. Let's get back to the guest. Matt Lolly is our interview last week and, of course, again this week. This week's section is longer, and I'm reminded of a lesson I learned. My dad is a twin. Nobody is rivals like twins. I learned that when they were boys, everything had to be equal, and fights started over taller glasses of milk and wider slices of pie. The solution was that one boy would pour the milk or cut the pie, and the other would pick which glass or which piece. This was a solution to the problem of the bigger half. If you have ever asked for half of something, and as it was forked, torn, cut, or otherwise divided, you thought to yourself, I hope I get that piece. You know what I'm talking about. You are also a terrible, greedy person like I am. Let's just get on with the bigger half of the interview with Matt Lolly. Your wallet is a green guru wallet? Yeah. So it uh, is made of recycled bicycle tubing. Correct. It's And it's for efficiency. And, it, and because I'm so disorganized, I need that smaller level of organization. So I know where all my crap is all the time. I just go in to pay for something. I know I'm going to reach between these two. Pull this out. This is my debit card. So this is a lot simpler than just the bifold wallet I've been carrying. It's a lot smaller. And it's freaking awesome. It's super minimal. You know, I get my credit cards, my insurance card, my driver's license, and some cash in there. Done. It's like super easy. Yeah, it's kind of cool because it's recycled bike tubes. I'm not like a dirty hippie that way. I apologize to all the dirty hippies I just offended. It, it's kind of neat. It's kind of cool. I wonder if we've offended any dirty hippies. <laughs> I can I can hear the Birkenstocks running down the street right now. Well, I made fun of Birkenstocks last <laughs> week. That's why I said that. <laughs> You carry field notebooks. Yes. And so the link that I have for the show notes is fieldnotesbrand.com. Are they field notes branded field notebooks? Yes, they are field notes branded field books. Okay. Yes. Why on earth? Why? Yes. This is one that I see in a lot of pocket dumps. I see on a lot of the forums and I personally just don't get it. I love analog, dude. They'll never... This coming from a guy who's got an iPhone in one pocket and an iPad in his bag, <laughs> you also carry field notebooks. Yeah, because... Your field notebook will never run out of battery. You can draw in it. I can sketch in the thing. And I've tried the digital sketching thing on my iPad, and it sucks. It feels more natural to me to have a pen or pencil in my hand and on paper. It's just what I've grown up doing. It's what I, it's what I did when I went to school, and it that just feels right to me. But you are not as serious about your pen. Uh, correct. I, I have... Some uh, pens I've gotten from various like bike things that, and the only reason I'm kind of tied to them is so the other guys at work, like that's an XTR pen. That's my pen. You give me my pen back. <laughs> it, it's more like who's got my pen really than like, than using it as like a fine writing implement. Well, you, uh, in your email to me was pretty specific about that. You won't carry a gel pen. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And and you said uh, that the pen that you carry is a clicker type. It doesn't have a cap and it's not a twist. Right. Because there was some sort of malfunction. Do you want to go into how a pen malfunctions? Sure. That's an EDC fail. So I definitely want to hear it. Uh, it was really more user error than um, a product error. My girlfriend and I went to Colorado last year for a little vacation. We went to go mountain biking and just kind of go check out Denver. We've been walking for a while. The sidewalks are really narrow on this street. And whoever decided that they were going to put these park benches in and bolt them into the concrete, instead of putting them completely like uh, parallel with the road, they put them on an angle. So if you're not paying attention, like me, you walk right into the edge of one of these things, directly make contact with the pen, the ink pen that's in your pocket. You explode the ink pen, but you don't realize it because you're pissed off about the dog poop on your shoe. And you're like, ah, that kind of hurt my hip a little bit. You put your hand in your pocket and you're like, why is my pocket wet? What's going on here? And then you realize that you exploded your pen and it's all over your pants, all over your hands, probably all over your leg. You get really pissed and you're about to just say, F all this S. And you look up and you see a sign that says... Brewery, 
and metal and New Haven style pizza, you say, F it. We're going to go listen to some metal, eat some pizza and drink some beer. Life's about to get a lot better. So that was an ink pen plastic bodied with like a cap? I think it was, yes. Uh, I think it was like a pilot, some kind of pilot mm-hmm. pen. They're awesome Oh, like a V5 that's got a straight liquid ink reservoir. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we mentioned them briefly before. I definitely want to hit them again because I think they're a fun invention. Uh, the Tiny Tool silicon strap set. You do have a pair of those or a set of those rather with you. Yeah, I just leave them in the bag. Um, a friend of mine runs like a bike blog, runs allhailtheblackmarket.com. He posted something on his blog about these guys a while ago. They had a Kickstarter program to kick off their tiny tool set. I've used them a few times, so I kind of just have them in the bag if I need to carry something extra or lash something down. I don't use them all the time, but they've actually come in pretty handy. And what would you say was the like the maximum, what, what's the tear weight on these things before they're just not going to work anymore? I've never blown one up, but I've also never tried to go out of my way to do it. He says that they're pretty strong and I've stretched them fairly far, but not to the point where like, oh, this is going to, this might fail. So I I don't know. Then that would be safety glasses on sort of stuff. Yeah. If you were stretching it between your two hands, I'm an advocate for safety glasses. I like my eyes and my head. To the point where you uh, go a little bit nicer with your glasses and with your helmet. In your state, is a helmet mandatory for bicycle riding? If you're 16 years or younger, yes. Okay, you are neither of those things. Correct. Well, my license says I'm older than 16, but sometimes I act much younger. Sure, but you're allowed to buy booze. (laughs) Yes. Therefore, uh, you do still wear a helmet, though, because a lot of your consideration is safety and other people. Absolutely. You have to watch out for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I I have seen enough of my customers or clients come in with a bag full of shredded kit and blown up helmet in one hand and a destroyed bicycle in the other to drop it off for their insurance adjuster because some jackass who was texting and driving was not paying attention and took a left-hand turn across the lane when they were coming and totally smoked one of our customers. And luckily, they were road rashed up. They were okay. But um, I've seen what that kind of crash can do to a helmet and this person is standing in front of me and talking with me and having a conversation where if they hadn't been wearing that helmet they would be that would be a completely different story mm-hmm. helmets are cheap insurance you know you can get a decent bike helmet for 30 or 40 bucks and uh how many helmets did you go through before you settled on yours as a gyro aeon or gyro uh a gyro yeah aeon uh, and that, of course, the link is in the show notes. Um, so I've been through a bunch of different ones, and they're all kind of similar to Aeon. I have a I have a second helmet for mountain biking. I have a little bit more coverage on the back of my head, and I've got a visor on the front of it just because visors look super cool. The that Aeon is like stupid light. It's really well ventilated. It doesn't even feel like you're wearing a helmet. It's one of the high end Jira road helmets. And I like it because I ride a lot, and I like to like my head to cool down when it's hot out. And I like the fact that it's super light. It almost feels like you're not wearing anything. And you also wear glasses, but you don't need corrective lenses. Correct. So Uh, uh, they're sunglasses or they're clear lenses or they're... They're both. Uh, The glasses I have, you can change the lenses out. So they make like a mirrored lens for really bright days. They make like this rose-colored one for helping pick up kind of changes in pavement and that kind of thing. And then they make a clear lens for uh, riding at night. So depending on on what kind of light's happening... Um, I'll change the lenses out. And they're from um, uh, smithoptics.com is the website. Right. It's Smith. I think they're called the Pivlock version 2, the V2s or something like that. But yeah, they're, they're, those are more for uh, protective wear than anything else. Getting bugs in your eyes suck. Getting dirt and dust or branches or spiders. Spiders in your eyes on the mountain bike trail? That really sucks. So they're really to kind of keep stuff out of your eyes. Protect your vision from UV rays and that kind of stuff secondarily, but... Right. Your concern is actual physical debris, whereas as a car driver, I have that wash button and wipers. You don't have that luxury. Exactly. And do you bring work shoes and the shoes that you listed to me as part of your kit are actually like little pedal lock shoes? Yeah, they're cycling shoes okay. and they interface with a uh, with a clipless pedal. Exactly. I leave two pairs of shoes at work. Um, so I don't have to carry an extra pair with me. If you decided to stop somewhere, how different is it walking around in them? They're rigid on the bottom or are they exactly. Kind of... Yeah. They're, they're so rigid. You click when so you walk. A little bit. These are uh, like a mountain bike style shoe. 
So the, the part that interfaces with the pedal is called a cleat. That cleat is actually recessed into the walking treads. Like a road-specific shoe doesn't really have the same walking tread as a mountain bike one. So those sound like, we always joke and call them our tap shoes. Those you could totally like soft shoe, but not really soft shoe down the aisle if you wanted to mess with people. But the, uh, the mountain bike ones, are, they're a lot easier to walk in. Well, mountain biking as a course, there's a lot more jump off the bike, throw the bike on your shoulder, run up this hill. If you suck at mountain biking like I do, yes, you do have to portage your bike over certain obstacles. <laughs> You're thinking of cyclocross, where you have to stop, dismount, go run over barriers and stuff. Yeah, you can walk around in a pair of mountain bike shoes. Running in them, um, it's probably a step up from running in, in thongs, like sandals. Right. But And there we are again. There we are, if we come full circle. I thought I could run pretty decently in those things, but I look like a lurch when I try to run in those things. It looks hysterical. I'm like, wow, that guy looks ridiculous. Oh my God, that's me. Oh dear. So, all right. Everything else is purpose-driven. You have the helmet, you have the glasses, you have the shoes, which is why also listed in your stuff. And when you mention you drop your work shirt and like normal human pants in favor of wearing a cycling jersey and shorts at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Do you take those off when you get to work? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. So most of my stuff is pretty traditional cycling oriented stuff. And it's just what you think it would look like. It's like Lycra Lycra jersey, Lycra bib shorts. I do have some that are like a baggy short. It's styled in such a way that you could just wear it out if you wanted to. It's it's walk off the bike into a bar, sit down, order a beer. And no one's going to look at you and be like, dude, where's the bike race? Did you win? (laughs) Yeah. So I've got... I've got a couple of different different styles going on, but yeah, it's... Um, and that is most all from the company called Twin Six Cycling, is that correct? Yeah, most of it's from Twin Six. Um, they're really good dudes. Um, I'm part of their uh, their race team called uh, Twin Six Metal Team. Uh, it's really, it's cool. They do a kit for all their racers that, that's specific to their race team. If they make extras, you can order it on their website. It's kind of a cool thing, but generally it's, it's just for the racer, racer guys and gals. Awesome designs, good dudes, part of the whole Minneapolis cycling click. Definitely uh, check so it to out. our listeners, there's apparently a cycling click in Minneapolis. There's a Minneapolis mafia. Oh dear. Cycling guy. Yeah. Minneapolis is kind of one of those hot spots. For cycling. Uh, they've got a ton of cycling infrastructure. There's a big cycling culture that happens there. And, and if you're not really into bikes um, or bike commuting, you may not even know it. But there's actually a lot of brands that are located out there, too. A lot of great bike shops, a lot of cycling advocacy and, and cycling culture that happens out there. But it gets cold. That's there. where fat bikes come into the equation. Right. Well, for some people. but uh, And like snowsuits. There's stuff you can get that will keep you warm year round. Absolutely. Hmm. Or or keep you warm through like the coldest of winters out there. Well, you said that wool is a good fabric for cold weather bike riding. Wool is a great fabric, like period. So much of the Lycra stuff, literally plastic clothing, plastic holds, body odor after a while. You need to get like a special detergent or mix up your own kind of DIY stuff at home to, to get the stink out of the stuff after a while. Wool is naturally kind of antimicrobial, so it doesn't hold that body odor. Uh, when it gets wet, you stay warm in it. It's a renewable resource. It, wool is awesome. You know, the jerseys keep you cool in the summertime. They keep you warm in the winter. If I could afford it, I would ride everything. My shorts, my jerseys, socks, you name it, everything would be wool. It's it's so comfortable to ride in, and it's such a nice material. Um, it's awesome. Uh, that's, that's knowledge to me. I had a great wool sweater that I did a lot of traveling with. Um, and it decided that it needed to dry itself in the dryer and is now too small for my nephew, but, um, <laughs> you can put it on your cat. So here, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you in a couple tricks. Use powder detergent versus mm-hmm. liquid powder washes out much more easily than liquid stuff does. Don't use fabric softener. If, if you have technical sporting clothing, Fabric softener gets in and it coats the fabric. It doesn't wash out. Stop using it for your cycling stuff. And don't, don't, don't use your dryer. If it's technical sporting equipment, it's designed to dry quickly. The whole point of having a cycling jersey and shorts is that it wicks moisture. Anything that's moisture wicking is going to dry very quickly. So hang dry it, line dry it, put it on a clothes hanger inside your house, hang it outside, whatever you want to do. That stuff will dry 
in a matter of an hour or so. It's uh, it's pretty amazing how fast that stuff dries up. These are good tips. I can't disagree with any of them. You could. I choose not to because I think you're smarter at this stuff than I am. And just quick bike fitting tips. You want, just like I see it all the time, you want when you're pedaling your sh- your knees to be as close to your shoulders as possible. You want to really <laughs> yes. lower that seat so you have a good low center of gravity and uh, your handlebar position is basic. Aerodynamics, man. You got to get aerodynamic. aerodynamic. Totally aerodynamic. Yeah. Do you, do you seriously want me to go over some basic bike fitting? Well, the joke that I'm trying to make is that I can spot, I know enough about what I'm looking at that I can spot a guy who is riding a bike because he has two DWIs um, <laughs> or the car is busted and he just like grabbed his little brother's bike. And even I, who not an avid bike rider at all, want to just pull over with my Leatherman and go, listen, I can make your life better. Give me five minutes. <laughs> like this needs to be up here. This needs to be over here. I can't change the fit of that bike. Frame length, frame size is stuff that you can special order for people. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Dude, you're hired. When do you start? <laughs> I'm already <laughs> way ahead of uh, a whole ton of folk. Yeah. I. Uh, so bike fitting is something else I do. Bike fitting is basically, first I figure out what kind of riding they're doing, where, how often, their their motivations. And I try to ask the questions that will tell me what their comfort goals are like, what their performance goals are like. Like, where are you now and where do you want to be? What do you want to try to do? Then we do uh, some physical assessment stuff. I do some strength tests. I do some flexibility assessments. I shouldn't say tests. I should say strength assessment, flexibility assessment, and and everyone's body. You know, you always hear, oh, everyone's different shape, sizes, whatever. Uh, Completely true. You know, we we figure out what your your physical limiters are, basically, and, and where you want to be with your riding. And we address what sort of what sort of issues or ailments you might be having on the bike, and we try to uh, we try to accommodate things. So, a lot of people don't know that bike fitting exists, but there are more and more shops that are starting to offer this and starting to train some staff in how to do this. There are various certifications that you can have to do it, and it's it's really amazing when it's done right. You basically climb onto your bike, your hands, your feet, and your butt just kind of fall where they should go without you even thinking about it. And ideally at the end of a ride, the only thing that should hurt or be sore are your legs. And that's because you chose to push yourself. But your grip shouldn't hurt. Your hands shouldn't hurt from trying to hold you on the bike. Your butt shouldn't hurt. Your back shouldn't be strained. Right. You're tired from all that riding you did. That's going to be natural. Essentially, yes. There are some situations where there are things that a bike fitter is not going to be able to change. For example, if someone has like a back fusion, they actually have a spinal fusion. That's a challenging, that can be a challenging fitting thing. Uh, we've had fit clients um, who have had, uh, you know, if they've had like a, some sort of physical deformity they were born with, like no hip joint. How do you fit that? And it's really being able to like look at someone and use like creative reasoning and really think about the way that their body's moving. And you have all these tools at your disposal. You may not necessarily use all these tools on every fit that you do, but it's picking the right tools to address the right things. And it's, you know, I've had clients who've gone to other places to have fittings done and have come to me and said, you know, I had this fitting done and everything's pretty good except for this or except for that. And we've actually, and we've made changes to accommodate them and make them feel a lot more comfortable on their bike or a lot more powerful or or what have you. So it's, it, it's really one of the most rewarding things that I do in my job. It's one of the things I get most excited about. You're basically directly enabling someone to ride longer, faster, harder. So where do I find the bike fitter at my local Walmart? No, <laughs> that's all I got for that. Uh, they, you know, they might be over putting your patio furniture together or they could be working like in the aisle with all the cleaning supplies for your bathroom. Totally. Right. Tr- look for the blue vest. Trust sure. that. Trust that person. Trust the blue vest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone in the bike world loves to talk down on Walmart bikes and Target bikes. But honestly, if that's all someone can afford and they want to ride, dude, we do a ton of repairs on department store bikes. With those bikes, the funny thing is that like a high-end bike you buy at like Sports Authority, we're talking like a three or $400 bike, is not that much different 
from a three or four hundred dollar bike that my bike shop sells. Very similar parts, very similar construction. The difference is who put that bike together. The bike builders and assemblers that work for those big box stores, they get paid per bicycle and they usually get paid maybe like 10 bucks per bike. It takes about an hour if you're lucky to put one of those bikes together safely and correctly so it actually will stop when you want it to, so it will shift correctly. The pedals aren't going to fall off. Things aren't going to bang loose after you ride it twice. If you're working for $10 an hour, where's your incentive to build that stuff right? Uh, The people that assemble those bikes basically sling them together as fast as they possibly can to get that green, man. You know, it's like sling them together. Who cares if the brakes work? Who cares if the fork is on straight? We, We see forks on backwards. It's insane what you see in those stores. But, but don't those turn all the way around? (laughs) <laughs> sure, whether you want them to or not. There you go. <laughs> I, I think the reality of it is that those are sometimes a gateway drug. I like to joke when people ask me what I do for a living. I tell them I'm a speed dealer. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, you know, it's true. That can be a gateway drug for somebody. You know, I started on a crappy Kmart bike. I didn't have the money to buy a new bike. I didn't know when I was like eight years old, when you're eight, you probably don't know that bicycle stores exist. I didn't. So you go to the big box store. You know, my dad bought the bike. It took him like a week to put the thing together. I probably should have died on it a couple of times. But that was like the gateway drug that really got me into it. I had like a string of crappy department store bikes because I couldn't afford a nice mountain bike. My parents were like, ah, 600 bucks for a bike. Yeah, uh, maybe you should get a job, pay for your own bike. You know, they didn't want to drop the money on that, which is fine. You know, once you start riding a lot, you realize that the cheap stuff doesn't hold up to heavy duty riding. But I mean, if, if it's all you got and that's all you can afford, run what you brung. Is how the saying goes, I think. What I just learned from you talking, though, is that all of those bikes, I never really thought about this before. All of those bikes on that rack that you can kind of sit on in the store are assembled in the store buy someone for 10 bucks an hour. They don't come out of the factory with somebody making sure that they're okay. Most bicycles you buy in the United States, whether it's a big box store or a bike shop, the bikes are assembled. The level of assembly depends on really kind of who touched it that day. Uh, Our builder takes the bicycle out of the box, takes all the packing material off. They have to assemble most of it and then they have to adjust and tune it so the brakes work correctly the bike's going to stop properly make sure it's going to shift correctly that doesn't happen just taking it out of the box and putting it together it's not slot a into tab b there's a lot more stuff that goes on generally the nicer stuff goes together a lot more easily and a lot more quickly than the cheaper stuff uh the, the inexpensive stuff there is sometimes some level of uh BTS that happens. There's two different meanings. There, it's uh, bend to shift, or uh, I like to say bend the. So I BTS this. Uh, I BTS this uh, this chain ring because it was completely wonky and not straight. So on really inexpensive stuff, there is a level of understanding with a with a tech or a mechanic that the quality control, depending on the cost of the bike, may not be where it really should be. And the final build is really left up to the shop that's doing it. So it's really the mechanic's responsibility to ensure that things are straight and aligned properly. And there might channel locks might have to come out and tweak the snot out of something to get it to shift right or to get it to align properly. And that it, it sounds kind of crude and it sounds kind of cavemanish, but believe me, there's an art to that. And someone who's a new bike mechanic does not have the skill, same skill as the guy who's been working on it for 16 years, who can walk over, glance at the thing, grab a pair of channel locks off the off the tool wall, and give it a little tweak and say, now try it. And the thing is perfect. On inexpensive stuff, there is a level of tweaking and adjustment that happens outside of the normal uh, normal spec for like a derailleur or brakes or something like that to make it work right. And I can almost guarantee you, probably with like 90% certainty, that a lot of the assemblers at those big box stores don't know how to do that. So that's why when you buy a bike at a big box store, it falls apart in three months um, or doesn't last. You know, somewhat like we hear all the time, oh, I got it. This bike was really cheap. 
I'm surprised it lasted this long. People know what they're getting into. Like anything, you, you know, in a lot of cases, you get what you pay for. Uh, in almost every case. Um, is it the same in the bike industry as it is with all the uh, the stuff here? Like our preview this week has an MSRP of $64 and a street price on some other websites of, you know, 49 or $50. Are the street prices on bikes and equipment generally lower than what factory websites say? Oh, man, dude, you're opening a can of worms right now. Oh, dear. Uh, um, oh, no, not versus online versus like if I walked into the shop. That's going to be at MSRP? For the most part, yeah. It, mm-hmm. it depends on the store that you walk into. We list at um, MSRP. Sometimes that it might be a little bit different from what MSRP is, depending on uh, the level of bike and that kind of thing. Thankfully, a lot of bike brands are really reinforcing their advertised, their, their advertised pricing. So if they find it on, you know, bikewholesaler.com, they're going to shut that down. The short answer is it's kind of all over the board. It all depends on who, who you're, uh, what brand you're looking at and what part you're looking at. Some brands are really, really good about controlling their pricing and controlling their distribution. And some brands suck out loud at it. And some of the brands that suck out loud at it, it makes it really tough because they are like a major player in the industry and if their stuff is on almost every bike. And if you don't stock their stuff, how are you going to make a living? So let me hold your feet to the fire. Sure. The two knives that you listed that you carry are the SOG Flash Tonto, uh, which is in some sort of partnership with a bike company, I believe. I think it was a limited edition release. It's uh Mine says Shimano and Pearl Zumi on it. Pearl Zumi is a clothing company and Shimano is like, they're like one of the big players in parts and that kind of stuff. A few of us went to one of their clinics and it was like a shop person only kind of little giveaway thing. So everybody who attended got one of these things. So that was given to me. I didn't go out and buy it. But your Kershaw Volt 2? Yes. Which you have the serrated black bladed version. Yep. Where did you get that? (laughs) Oh God, you're going to make me sound like a f***ing hypocrite. You you went to a giant online site with A and Z in the title, maybe? No, the, no A and Z. I did get it from a clearinghouse place. Okay. Um, I bought one for my dad for Father's Day like two years ago, mm-hmm. and I was like so impressed with it. I was like, oh, I'll grab another one too. I, I guess I have to justify this too. So if there was a shop locally that carried these knives, I would gladly have paid full retail because I value the relationship of that shop. So here's the other side of, of my rant that I just went on. One of the things I think that one of the reasons why I think people are shopping online, they're sick of bike shops. There are so many people that come into my store and say, I went to such and such a bike shop and I just had the worst experience. I'm sure there are people that have come into our store and not gotten the experience that they expected and maybe gone and said the same thing to that other bike shop. I'm sure that's happened. I've heard so many people come in and complain about other stores or complain about crappy service that they've had at other bike shops. And I think one of the reasons that that happens is bike shops are run typically by enthusiasts. They're run by people who think like, I love bikes and I have a bunch of money. I think it'd be really fun to own a bike shop. It's people that may not necessarily have very sharp business acumen. Um, I think I'm very lucky that my bosses are very business-minded. Actually, they're both enthusiasts as well. Everyone who works at my shop, we all love bikes. We love to ride. But the co-owners are extremely business-oriented. So I'm pretty lucky that I've, I've been able to work around that for 10 years. I've learned a lot from these guys. But there are a lot of crappy bike shops. And there are a lot of people getting really crappy experiences at bike shops. We try our best to hold ourselves to a higher standard of retail. We really try to align ourselves with these high-end places of retail that are really providing customers like unparalleled experiences, unparalleled shopping experiences. Because I think comparing yourself to other bike shops is really low-hanging fruit. It doesn't take a lot to be able to kind of best another bike shop down the street where there's some teenage kid working there. And no offense to teenage kids, but if there's some teenage kid down the street who just thinks it's cool to work in a bike shop, 
Um, or there's some kind of racer DB working down the street who thinks he's, you know, hot crap because I'm a race guy and he only wants to try to interact with other racers and he's going to poo-poo all over like the family who wants to come and ride together. That's really low-hanging fruit and it's really easy to best those guys. I think so many people have had really crappy experiences in bike stores that they're just sick of it. They're sick of the attitudes, they're sick of the elitism, or people that don't know what they're talking about, and they're not comfortable admitting that they don't know what they don't know, so they make stuff up, which is like the worst, one of the worst things, inside of like directly insulting someone who comes into your store, or insulting their wife, or husband, or kids, um, that's like super insulting, because in a day and age with the internet, you can learn so, I, I have customers who come in who know the A, B's and C's of products before they even come out, before I've even touched them or seen them, they sometimes know more than I do about certain things. And I'm not ashamed to tell them, holy cow, like you've really done your research. Like, I don't know anything about that. Learn me. I, I want to know. I mean, imagine if you went to the grocery store, a Whole Foods, and you go to like, where do you buy the cheese and stuff? And the dude looks down his nose at you because you don't know about some particular kind of brie or you ask some question. He's like, huh, yeah, well... You know, if you really knew cheese, you'd know, yeah, it's too good for you. That's still the modus operandi of most gun shops. Not only is it that they are, that everyone working behind a gun counter has got to be a gun guy or a gun girl. So they have these hangups and they have this stuff. Oh, don't look at that. Or, you know, that one's a piece of crap. They also just industry-wide, nearly industry-wide, any independent gun shop is just sort of supposed to be filthy. And old and sort of decrepit. Uh, I went into one recently and I just love the shopping experience there because they, you know, keep it, it clean, clean yeah. and well lit. And it like I'm in an actual store. You should feel like you're in a jewelry store or a watch store when you're in a gun store. Not like you're in a machine shop where they go, oh, yeah, let me uh, wipe this grease off my hands and show you the handgun. Yeah, dude, replace gun store with bike store. Yeah. And we are talking about the exact same thing. It's that, it's that specialty industry. And once there are mechanics involved, you know, if I'm coming to you for your technical expertise, I'm somehow supposed to expect that experience to be worse. Yeah. Cause you, Matt, know about bikes and can fit the bike. So your customer service is going to suck, but I'm going to go there anyway is what a lot of people expect. Yeah. Well, that's starting to change, especially with the internet because. People knowing they can go online and get stuff cheaper than what I sell it for, it's done a few things. You know, the people that are just sick of dealing with bike shops and, and really crappy bicycle retail experiences, now they have a way to go buy this stuff and they don't have to deal with all these elitist jerks. And in a gun store, if you want to go, you can't, I don't think, you can't buy a gun online. You have to go to a store to get one. So that's where the gun stores kind of got Most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, the, so, the news media will tell you that you can buy a gun online, but it's not actually the case. You can just text and get one from your phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, well, we don't have that luxury, especially where there are these parts that you used to only be able to get in a bike store. Now you can get online. I think in the coming years, you're going to see some bike stores going out of business who just can't hack it anymore, just don't want to try to hack it. You know, the face of the retail landscape is consistently changing and there are going to be a bunch of old school dudes who have no fitting rooms in their store. They've got some dingy little closet with no lighting. Yeah. Ask your woman cyclist to go change in this dungeon looking room. Yeah. That's not really going to work. There are going to be people who refuse to change. They're going to go away. And the shops that really want to try to make a difference and really are really care about their customers and care about their customers' experiences those are the ones that are going to stick around. We are going to move on. I'm going to move you on. I want to find out something from hopefully the bike industry, because that's most of what we were talking about, that you hated. Something that you bought that you thought was going to be great. This is called the junk drawer, and I want to know something that you purchased that just didn't work out. Ah, um, You knew this question was coming. <laughs> I did, but I didn't think about it. Now, is it that... You love all your gear so much because you're such a bike head or is that there's just such a stack of stuff? No, nah, I, I kind of got to think about I haven't had that many duds and the stuff that I haven't liked has really been more of a personal preference. It's not like, oh, God, this thing's a piece. Of okay. It's more like, ah, this is just not working like I thought it was going to work. I can only think of one thing. They're not a bad company. They don't make bad products. They actually make they make some really cool stuff. And they make some stuff that's 
that's designed really well. It personally just didn't work for me, and I'll get into why. So, company's called Crank Brothers. A lot of people love their pedals, and for the longest time, that's all that I rode on my mountain bike and my cross bike. They make this pedal called the Egg Beater, which is very minimalist. It sheds a lot of mud, so for cyclocross season, those things are awesome. You have to get off the bike and run through a section. Your feet get clogged with mud because you race in the fall and the wintertime. It's generally wetter and colder. Great at shedding mud. The thing that didn't work for me, it could be argued that I was an idiot with this, and I'll accept that. So the cleat that attaches to your shoe that interfaces your shoe with the pedal is made out of brass. And the reason for that being that the wings on the pedals are made out of steel. And if you had a steel cleat against a steel wing, chances are you're going to wear your pedals out just as fast as you wear your cleats out. It just stands to reason. It's metal on metal. These wings are pretty thin. They have to be as part of their design. So I was using one pair of shoes to mountain bike in, to commute to work in, and to race cyclocross in. The cleats are made of brass. Uh, I was changing the cleats out probably three times a year because they were getting essentially daily use plus. I had three crashes on my mountain bike, three really stupid crashes because I simply couldn't get my foot out of the pedal because the cleat was so worn. To get out of these pedals, for, for people who don't ride, you generally have to put your foot at the bottom of the pedal stroke so your leg is mostly extended and twist your heel to the outside and that will allow the wings to spread open and the cleat to be released and your foot to get out. So as the cleat wears, the wings close in closer and closer together. You need to twist your foot further and further to the outside. My ankles are not great because of many years of soccer when I was younger. Uh, so I don't have a lot of range of motion in my ankles and my hips aren't that great either. I had three stupid crashes, one of which was kind of bad because I simply couldn't get my foot out. And for me, with a clipless pedal, especially in the woods, I want to get out when I want to get out and not a second less. Uh, I kind of suck when it comes to technical stuff in the woods. I'll be completely upfront. I'm not a great technical rider. A lot of my friends are way better than I am and they're total saints for riding with me in the woods. Three kind of stupid crashes. Uh, I almost broke my ribs on one of them. And after the third time, I was like, F this. These pedals are going in the trash. They're coming off all my bikes. I'm switching back to a different pedal setup and that pedal setup has not failed me since then. So, uh, those, I have like two or three pairs of crank brothers sitting in my parts bin, uh, or affectionately my junk drawer. See what isn't out there. What are you looking for? What do you have in the back of your head that doesn't exist? This is your wishing tree. Maybe it does exist and it's just way out of everybody's price range. Or maybe it's just something that nobody has built in a long time or no one has built yet. So full disclosure here, I'm a bag whore. I love bags. And the last thing I saw that made me like just kind of go like, whoa, I might have to have one of these. But I don't know if I'm ready to replace my Mission Workshop yet. Chrome makes a bag. Chrome is kind of the, uh, they, they were known for making messenger bags, like messenger quality pro bags that a bike messenger could use, abuse, uh, just beat up on, and it's there to serve you day after day. They kind of have this little iconic bit to it. They have a seat belt release strap. So if you see a messenger bag with a seat belt buckle, that's probably a chrome bag. It's worth, if you're going to bet your friend money, that's, that's a pretty safe bet. Last September, uh, there's a big bike convention, bike industry convention that happens in uh, Las Vegas called Interbike. It's probably the largest one in the States. Pretty much every big name bicycle retailer, bike vendor rather, is there. And Chrome's there every year. They had a bag that's called the Pro Barrage Messenger Bag. And it's a backpack style bag. It actually made me take pause and say, I might actually replace my current backpack with this bag. Just there's a ton of room. Uh, They use PVC truck tarp on the inside. So it's a waterproof bag. The thing could pack down really compact or could like open up to carry a ton of crap. They designed the bag with messengers in mind. Everything in their pro series is designed for professional messengers. So guys and girls who spend... All day, every day, five days a week on their bikes, delivering packages. 
And they also kind of designed this one with a slant towards food messengers or people delivering for restaurants. So you can you can stack up a bunch of different food orders and carry this stuff upright so it's not falling over in the bag, getting all over the place. But it was really cool. I mean, really well thought out, really well designed. That would be the bag that I might replace mine with. But the thing that kind of made me hesitate was it's... Uh, it's sort of an all or nothing bag. It's not as compact as the one that I use right now, uh, which is kind of a deal breaker because I, I like the fact that if I don't have a lot of stuff in the bag I have right now, I can zip it down and it's just kind of a normal backpack size. This other one, just from the nature of its design, it's still pretty big and slightly oversized. So that's what was kind of giving me pause and the price tag on it too. I think it like retails for like $300 or something like that. It's, it's, uh, or 350 bucks. It's, um, I mean, it's a professionally, it's for professional messengers. You know, they need something that's not going to fail for me to spend 350 bucks on a bag that I use to cart myself back and forth to work with. The mission workshop was not a cheap bag, but I've had it now for well over six years. And it's, uh, I restitched one part of it that was coming apart and it's held fine, no problem. So it's still still totally kicking ass. Before I let you go, there's a story from before you were an avid bike rider when you were still a skateboarder. Someone tried to kill you in a pickup truck, and then karma destroyed them. Do you remember that story? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I used to snowboard a lot. Longboarding really kind of mimicked snowboarding. It was pretty similar. You know, you carve down a hill. And this is when I was pretty obsessed with snowboarding, thought about it 365 days a year, even if it was 90 degrees out. So longboarding was a way I could kind of get my snowboard Jones going. I had this board from this company. I don't even know if they exist anymore. It was called Flex Decks or Flex Deck. And they made these boards. It wasn't fiberglass. It wasn't wood, but it was basically some sort of man-made deck material. And they had this awesome flex to it. And you could really kind of pump it through corners and almost really get the thing to carve an edge, very similar to a snowboard. So carving around, I was coming down a hill and got a little squirrely, got way too sideways. So I, I jumped off and the board continued to careen down the street. And around the corner came this beat up red pickup truck, rust spots, squeaking, making all kinds of noise. This dude came around the corner and the board was kind of, it was going perpendicularly across the street, but um, not completely square, kind of at a long angle. He came around the corner and kind of saw what was happening and saw the board, matted it, swerved, <laughs> drove over my skate, completely under both wheel, front and rear wheels, gung, 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 ran the thing right over, it, front wheels went over it. It compressed the board down, and because it was this really springy deck material, the thing shot up, smashed the bottom of the truck, flipped the board over, ran over the back end of it, and just, like, took off. I was so pissed. Got on the street, picked the board up, looked at it. Little bit of a scuff on the wheel. The deck was fine. No cracks, no breaks, no nothing. So I just kind of, like, eh, flipped it over, stepped on it, and <laughs> skated back home. <laughs> Part of me liked to think that because the thing really fired into the, he really preloaded the snot out of that thing and really fired it into the bottom of his truck. So I can only imagine what went through his head when he's like, yeah, I'm going to get this guy. Well, bam. And he's like, Oh man. You know, I'm, I'm sure there was when he got to where he was going, there was a little bit of a uh, getting out of the truck, crawling underneath to see what, how, what was that, you know, sounded worse than a bag of laundry going under my truck. But this guy aimed for the board, expecting it to break like a piece of wood. He and... totally aimed for it. That's kind of indicative of the way some people are where I live. They just, uh, some people just want to go out of their way, MF you, you know? But I got the last laugh. But now, now you're safer because you're on a bike. Oh, so much safer. So much safer. Could you hear the sarcasm in my yes, voice? Yes, I could hear the sarcasm okay, in your voice. Just you know, we all joke that uh, that when we go out and we ride, we're fully aware of the fact that this could be it, but we ride anyway. The the thing that's really frightening about when you're on a bike is you have nothing to protect you. In a car, you you are more protected. When people get into a car, they're basically separated from everything else. Because I don't think anyone goes out to purposefully run down cyclists. But I don't think people are, are thinking that even if I clip this person, I could kill them. That doesn't run through their heads. 
and the other side of it too is is I I totally get I know there are people that are getting all worked up thinking like well you know these cyclists ride like shoulder to shoulder three people ride and they take up the whole lane and I agree uh, you need to be respectful it, respect goes both ways just having a little more compassion for for other human beings and I think that's in pretty short supply these days around the board regardless of whether you identify yourself as a cyclist or as a motorist, um, just, just in general. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Uh, it was super educational and as a whole other set of stuff that I'm not into was fun listening and learning about bicycle levels of stuff. Uh, you know, being outside with it and, and, and using your equipment in that way. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, dude. It was a total blast. Okay. That's 35 minutes last week and 44 minutes this week. If you did it right, you just finished 79 minutes of Matt-on-Matt action. I was up late cutting and getting up early to edit. It felt like staying awake for a thousand days and things had changed like a decade when I was done. I hope that I get to have really in-depth conversations with a ton of more people. And what I loved about this one was the fact that Matt cares about each of his choices as much as I care to ask. He's hardcore with his daily carry, and that's exactly who this show is for. So Matt mentioned the term BTS, which actually means bend to shift, or it could mean bend that stuff. And it's a term used in his circle... He doesn't just bike in a circle, but, you know, in the circle that he... You, you get the point. When something comes out of the box just all jacked up, and in order to get it working, you have to make some repairs while installing. BTS sounds like something the EDC community could adopt or adapt for our own uses. This isn't duct tape or MacGyvering something. This is out-of-the-box, day-one, not-ready-for-prime-time kind of mistakes. We also used MSRP this week, and not as a bad word. There's a feeling, especially online, that only suckers pay retail. But as we talked about in the interview, somewhere in the fourth hour, I think, those online prices are the vines that choke out the garden. The price listed as the manufacturer's suggested retail price, MSRP if you didn't actually know, is the price that accounts for a store selling that product and making money. A store has to keep lights on, it has to pay employees, and hopefully those employees know what the hell they're talking about. So there's the algebra of price versus value coming up in a new way. It's worth it to pay the retail price at a store because of the added benefit of having a store to shop at, having people to help you with your choices, being able to put your hands on something before you buy it. TLA is a three-letter acronym for three-letter acronym. And because of that, it was my favorite three-letter acronym. However, I found this out to be untrue, as acronyms can be pronounced like NATO, which is a word that means North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and OPEC, which means oil-producing something. TLA is an initialism, as is MBA, NBA, MLB, NFL, KKK, NWA, ICP, and my favorite initialism, PDPC. EDC is an initialism. That to us means everyday carry. But to others, lots of others, on Instagram, it means electric daisy carnival. And it's apparently a really large sock hop or other such shindig. I had this feeling that the music played at this laser hoedown was just a lot of noise. And then I had a feeling that I was the old guy who complains about music today being garbage. And then I had a feeling that I should listen to my old garbage CD from the 90s, but I couldn't find it. What to say to the man with no belt? Correcting a man for not having a belt is a bit like grounding somebody else's kid. It might be the right thing to do, but it is just not allowed. My dad was a suspenders guy, and my brothers, children of the 80s and its tight, tight jeans didn't teach me how to wear a belt. I wore a few belts now and again for fashion's sake, but it was never a requirement until that was corrected by my recruit company commanders in Cape May, New Jersey. Maybe it's just how I was brainwashed that day, but I can't leave the house without my belt on anymore. On the Every Daily, we carry more in our pockets than others do, and not everything is only an ounce. 
So if the pockets are full and the cargo pockets and the holster is on, then the belt is vital to keeping everything where it belongs. Even the guy who works or rides to work right next to you has a wallet of some sort, a phone, and I imagine some keys. He also has a whole bathing suit area he might not want exposed, but there's far too great a chance in our modern world that he is not using his belt loops for anything. Nothing! My older brother takes care to wear a belt around me, because I can't shut up about it when he doesn't, and also I pantsed him once. He's a guy who utilizes cargo pants a good deal of the time, and he still isn't at 100% belt compliance. The skinny gene is back, bending phones and causing rare hospital visits due to lack of circulation to the lower extremities, but the belt is still critical. And we have to figure out a way to explain that. The belt is as important as shoes. And those should match, by the way, unless it's sneakers. But even then, do what you can to not look like an idiot. Wear a belt. And if you see someone who doesn't have a belt, ask them if they lost it, but in the most complimentary way you can. Oh man, you partied so hard last night you just couldn't find your belt this morning? I can't carry everything I want to carry. And I'm already wearing a strap around my waist to hold my pants up. And there are men out there who just aren't even trying. Last night, I saw a TV commercial on channel, you know, 1.2 million for the Keysmart, complete with terrible lighting and cheesy voiceover guy. It's happened. EDC garbage is here. I never liked the Swiss Army design, especially for keys. I think it's too long. I think the access is weird. I'm far more excited for the key pack. Search for KeyPack as one word on Kickstarter or go directly through the link on the show notes at pdpc.rogintel.com. It's steel, not aluminum. It's not long. It's square. And that keeps as many of the sharp little edges contained as possible. There's a loop for hooking it onto something or hooking something onto it. The KeyPack does what it's supposed to do and it does it right. It is seen with the leather loop type ones and the first generation of nut and bolt systems that some mechanic with a drill press and not enough to do said, There, I fixed it! And everyone followed that system over the cliff. The key pack started from scratch. Actually, it started from stab, after the inventor got himself really good in the leg with a sharp key after a fall. Keys would lay flat against each other and not act like a shuriken in your pocket if they weren't mounted on a ring facing outward, so he thought. So a really nice industrial design later, and I'm recommending it on my show. Check it out on Kickstarter, where it's got about two weeks left. Really cool are the stretch goal rewards. Like, longer screws for more keys is automatic if they hit a stretch goal. And if they hit the right stretch goal, other colors besides black and white become available. So... Throw in for this thing. You'll have it in September, either black or white and four keys, or if we all jump at it, bunch of other colors and eight keys. I'm getting one of each so that I can have my keys I need every day on one and my keys I don't need every day but need to remember where they are on another. So black and white is okay for me, but red and blue would be cooler. So go on out to kickstarter.com and search for the key pack. Of course, our link is at the show notes, pdpc.rogintel.com. You can subscribe to the Pocket Dub Podcast on iTunes and through Stitcher Radio or on other services you might use. Just go to pdpc.rogintel.com and copy the RSS feed info as needed. While you're there, you can join our forum or just leave feedback for me. If you dig this podcast, you might also like to listen to the fanboys put pop culture on trial or you can subscribe to Rogue Intel's Prime and listen three times a week to Duff and Chris crack each other up on weird news stories and trivia. That's a blast. If you are politically minded or serious, or especially both, you need to listen to Candid with Lona Mori. She holds nothing back. It is a great listen. The music this week is almost the same as last week, some different tracks, but from the same artist, Spencer Alby. He is a multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, and producer uh, you can go to SpencerAlby.com if you dig some of this music. I'm using some of his older tracks, uh, and you can also search for him on iTunes. I know he just dropped an album, but I don't even have mine yet. Next week, our guest on the show is our first law enforcement officer. Hopefully, that will be a stimulating, deep, and interesting conversation. I expect next week to be a full 60 minutes and as much of that of interview as possible. After we're done talking to Chris... 
I become the guest. There will be a special guest host, and I will dump my pockets for you guys, and then we'll get back on to me interviewing other folks. Uh, you guys will all be hearing from me soon. 